0: And welcome to another class in the bunker. Um, I say bunker because at the time that we are recording this, there is a little bit more of an upsurge in that coronavirus thing. And so we're kind of, I guess we need to be bunkering up a little bit uh, to protect us. But welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, glad you're joining us and glad that uh, you're, you're part of... Uh, what we're doing here. This is always such a great experience for all of us. Uh, and again, we'll probably run this class through about the middle of December, take a holiday break, and then uh, be back to it. we got a lot of lot of stuff to study. If you think about it, we've been going all semester here. Uh, and we're having a hard time getting out of the first few chapters of Genesis. It's just so meaty and so filled with things that uh, we don't always have the opportunity in a gospel doctrine setting or institute or anywhere else to really go into this kind of depth. And man, is there a lot of depth here and a lot of great lessons. Because uh, again, we're looking at the Savior's scriptures. We're looking at Paul's scriptures. This is the things that they drew their information from. And so, that early generation of the church, this is their scriptures. Now, we were talking last time about... Um, the, the flood and we were able to see I think pretty clearly that the, um, the flood was uh, a, a second creation. It was a chance for uh, the mankind to be born and begin to move forward and then there was a recreation that uh, then turned everything upside down and in a sense uh, started over. The same way that we do when we are recreated in Christ to become new people. Now, part of this story, though, the thing that we didn't get to in the last class was the background to this and why it is that this had to happen as opposed to other things that the Lord could have done to institute some kind of corrective measures to turn these guys around, get them to be better, and why it is that he went to uh, this kind of cataclysmic event uh, to try and get their attention. Now the, the information that we're given in, in Genesis really kind of comes down to uh, this and we see it uh, in Moses 8 The earth was corrupt uh, the, the record says before God and it was filled with violence that remember with the in the Mayhound principle and always being able to try and exchange property and things that you want things that you lust after for blood and the shedding of blood to be able to get what you want and then to do that in secretly so secretly so that you are more efficiently able to get what you want through the shedding of blood. Uh, the description here is that it, the earth has become to be filled with violence, and I think we look around at, at things going on and we say it still seems to be. and And we're going to talk about uh, uh, the violence now uh, in just a second. But and God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had become corrupt; had corrupted its way upon the earth. This, way, this idea of the way is something that uh, the early church will take as their name. Uh, as the Savior says, I am the truth and the way. That was really the name of the church. And that was the name that the Romans were attacking this people who were part of the way. And it might have its, its roots all the way back uh, to Genesis for, for all we know. But at this point, we're saying all flesh was corrupted, corrupted its way upon the earth, its journey, its path, and it's corrupting it. And what is it doing? Well, and God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh is come before me um, for the earth is filled with violence. For behold, I will destroy all flesh off the earth. Now, to a certain extent, we might look at this and think uh, there's an incredible paradox here. That part of what the Lord is decrying loudly is the ongoing violence and the bloodshed of of good people, and and that he can't and he and he's angry about or upset about the violence and Noah is upset about the violence at that moment what we're also seeing is the fact that um, just a couple of verses earlier that Noah is is being attacked by people who would uh, try and hurt him and try and hurt him his family simply out of a sense of uh, righteousness and that they're going to covet and and try through bloodshed to get rid of him. Well, again, this violence is being perpetrated against Noah, against his family, but good people on the earth are also being uh, caught up in this violence. Here's the paradox. (laughs) The paradox is, because of the violence, I'm going to commit the greatest violence maybe in the history of the world, even if it was regional as opposed to uh, a total immersion, which we don't know, and we talked about that a little bit last time, that it would seem that he is attacking violence by creating violence. And this is where some people in attacking the Bible and attacking uh, theology are talking about the fact that uh, religious people always seem to be at war. And the fact that, uh, and, the, and they'll say that, that more wars were caused by religion than anything else. And their short-term answer to that is, eliminate religion, you eliminate uh, the wars. Well, there have been a lot of wars fought in the name of religion. There were a lot of crusades and bloodshed shed across shields with a cross on it. Uh, now, there are an awful lot of wars, actually more wars when you look at it, that were fought by uh, ungodly people than godly. But still, uh, there is a point to be made for the fact that uh, there is a lot of bloodshed that has happened. A lot of violence has been created in the name of religion. They're getting rid of that violence with more violence. And that, that is that, that's a problem. And it's probably one of those big stumbling blocks for people even reading the Book of Mormon. As we take a look at even the, the words that are being said in the Book of Mormon and how Book of Mormon prophets and leaders handle the problem of violence even in the Book of Mormon. Now, a good example, of course, is that we know that Mormon, who is the the, the great abridger of, of the Book of Mormon. His, his life was filled with violence. The, the world around him was a continual round of violence as, as uh, those that called themselves Nephites were fighting those that were being called Lamanites and that battle for control. And, and so that, uh, that question was, with good Christian people, at what point do we use violence uh, to combat violence? Well, one of the things that we get in, in the Book of Alma is that, and this was their faith, and this is Mormon's abridgment that he's dropping in, this is his commentary on what he's watching. And this was their faith, that by doing so, God would prosper them in the land Or in other words, he says, if they were faithful in keeping the commandments of God, that he would prosper them in the land. And then he's going to kind of define prospering in this way. He's going to say, Yea, warn them to flee or to prepare for war according to the danger. So he's going to say there may be some times when when it's okay to flee, and times when you fight. And he's going to give us, and the book of Alma gives us both, back to back, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, who choose to flee and not fight, and then Captain Moroni, who's going to choose to fight and choose to suppress those that would attack and, and do so reluctantly, but do so very, very effectively. And and Captain Mormon in the first part of his abridgment, is looking back and he's saying if all men were like Captain Moroni the very gates of hell would shake and you get that sense that probably in all likelihood he is so uh, uh, enamored and amazed by Captain Moroni that he named his own son uh, Moroni that he will then be like this great Nephite general. Now Something, though, occurs, and it's worth taking a look at, and and something pointed out by uh, uh, Patrick Mason that I think was uh, pretty insightful. After Kimorra, after he has watched the, the full extension of fighting and bloodshed and more fighting and bloodshed, and that he's watched it play itself out to the total destruction of his people, and untold death and misery even on the the victor's side, even on the Lamanites, who then continue after Camorra to be attacking each other. They have such a bloodlust that they can't stop attacking each other. And the history of uh, the, the Mayan people uh, in that region down there was one of continual bloodshed and battling and control for power. So... After Camora, we get this little statement in his last few words that he has to speak to the Gentiles. What does he say? Know ye that ye must lay down your weapons of war. Well, stop there. The great story that he has just uh, done the editing for, there was only one group that laid down their weapons of war voluntarily. And that was the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. Lay down your weapons of war and delight no more in the shedding of blood and do not take them up again save it be that God shall command you. In in other words, in his dying uh, day, he's almost saying to us, I want you to emulate somebody. And it may not be Captain Moroni. It may be the anti-Nephi-Lehi's who actually laid their weapons down. And in one case were attacked and destroyed, but in the other case they fled. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's are not at Cumorah. Their sons are not at Cumorah. Uh, By this point, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's fled the land. And they went into the land northward and were no more heard of again. They just left the entire scene altogether. And, and you're kind of getting this idea from, from Mormon that maybe that's, that's what, need, what's what he was suggesting. He's so blood-soaked that he says there's got to be another way even if you have to flee. Now, let me give you a couple more examples, I think, of, of where the Lord is going with violence, and then we will come back to uh, Noah and, ha- and how that's, that's handled. Um, we talked uh, a class or two ago about uh, Elisha. Remember this story? Uh, and it's one that uh, you heard in General Conference uh, recently. Remember this one where there are, there are bands of, of people coming to ins- to, into the land of Israel to attack um, the king of Israel and specifically Elisha and they're going to try and capture him and and we get this moment where um, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and went forth a host encompassed the, the, the city both horses and chariots and his servant remember a young lad um, Elder Holland calls him the local teachers quorum president uh, and his servant said unto him alas master what shall we do remember this one And then uh, Elisha's great line. And he answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than those that be with them. And we talked about that that reassurance was nice, uh, but Elisha now prays and says, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes, the servant's eyes, that he may see. Yes, the reassurance is nice, but now give him vision, as we talked about, that our real... Uh, confidence in the Lord comes as we gain vision, not just reassurance. And and it's it's a great lesson. And then then you remember this. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. His eyes are now open. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire uh, round about Elisha. And we say, hooray, you know, they're going to be safe because these... These chariots of fire, these horsemen of Israel, they're called in another place, are going to be able to defend and attack and win the battle and keep Elisha and the king of Israel safe. Okay, Great story. But do we know the rest of the story? To quote Paul Harvey. Is there another story? What have we missed? And there is another story here and it's pretty great. And it says a lot a lot about what we're talking about. Listen to the rest of this story. Very next verse. And when when they, the, the, uh, the horsemen of Israel, when they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, do what? Smite, smite them. Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. Don't attack them. Find another way. Smite them with blindness. Watch how brilliant this is. And he smote them with blindness according to the the word of Elisha and then he leads them to Samaria, it's actually a great story. Where now they can't see these ones that come to attack Elisha, and he says, "Okay, I'll lead you to the city and the man you're looking for." They go, "Okay." So he leads them. What does he do? He takes them home. Elisha is going to lead these attackers back into Syria. <laughs> great stuff. And then, then what does he do? Then does he attack them? No. And it came to pass that when they were into Samaria, now Elisha says, and there's a parallel from over here, open their eyes. The way you open my servant's eyes, and he was able to see the support that's really there. Open their eyes that they may see. Well, what do they see? Well, (laughs) they're in Samaria. Elisha took them home. Well, now what is he gonna do? Now he's got them trapped. Now do you attack them? No, look at what Elisha did. He prepared great provision for them and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. So the bands of Syria came no more into the land of Israel. Elisha had at his disposal a heavenly army sent by the Lord of hosts who could have destroyed them. And Elisha smites them with blindness and then gets them home and then feeds them and then sends them away and as a result they come no more into the land of Israel. He was able to defend the king and his people and Israel without shedding blood. He found a way to do that. And sometimes what happens what we're going to find over and over is armies of the Lord, as they do what they do, can oftentimes do it without bloodshed. I think that's why uh, sometimes those that are really studying closely the Book of Mormon wonder if there maybe wasn't another way for Nephi to have gotten the plates without having to slay Laban. We will never know, and it may be that he really was uh, commanded, but it seems like the Lord is doing everything possible to avoid bloodshed. Uh, th- think about Alma and uh, the, the the people uh, at the waters of Mormon, and they found a way to get under, to escape their captivity, because the Lord put them to sleep. It's like the Lord's always looking away. Now, along along this this uh, path here. I actually went back and did some, some kind of history of my own, and in the in the modern day Latter Day Church, do you know that we've actually had about four armies that I could think of off the top of my head that marched forward under a Mormon banner, under a Latter Day say I say Mormon because that's how they would have seen themselves at the time, they marched forth under the church banner. And what happens? Well, let's remind ourselves. What the first one I could think of was Zion's Camp in 1834. They're going to go forward and redeem Zion. Uh, Zion have been driven out of Jackson County, and they're they're over the river and and. Uh, They're going to put together an army of somewhere between 100 to 500 men and they're going to march forth in the the power of Zion and they're going to sing army songs and they're going to march with their rifles and they're going to come through and redeem Israel and Zion with the sword and and they get there and what happens? Well, as a result, they didn't fight. They didn't fight and remember how many of them were disappointed that they didn't fight and saw Joseph as maybe a fallen leader because dang it, we were going to get to be like the armies of Israel and we were going to destroy our enemies and we were going to take back Zion with the sword and I think there might have been even in Joseph a sense of this is what's going to happen we're going to get there and do it with the sword they didn't fight they just relocated the the people somewhere else. How about the Nauvoo Legion? There was an incredible, there were thousands of men under arms, sanctioned by uh, the state of Illinois, that marched and trained and drilled, and then when they were really needed, both in the protection of Joseph Smith and then the angry outpouring that may have followed the death of Joseph Smith, where they could have leveled Illinois and didn't do it. We know that the Nauvoo Legion didn't fight, though they had the ability and the arms to do so. Another army, the Mormon Battalion, called up my own uh, pioneer forefather uh, mark, marching all the way from Winter Quarters all the way down through Pueblo, Colorado down, down into uh, Albuquerque and then turns around and then goes back and you know this, this march of a thousand miles that these guys did did they fight? well no they did have a battle against a herd of bulls and I think they beat the bulls um, but they didn't fight they didn't have to fight. Their presence as an army successfully um, did what needed to be done and actually made it possible for the saints to have the money to get all the way out to the valley on their, on their dime, basically, as they gave up their salaries to, to pay for the provisions. Okay? Mormon Battalion didn't fight. The other army I could think of was uh, Lot Smith's Marauders and Guerrillas. Remember those guys that, that again were gonna fight against Johnson's army marching to Utah and and Lot Smith puts together his crew and and the the most violent thing that they did is they kept burning the wagons and the provisions. And then remember that great story of how they're marked they tell Johnson's army finally when you come into Utah you have to come down through Echo Canyon, which they do and you remember that they uh, the lots Smith's marauders are gonna march around campfires at night in in view of the the army and then they will as the army moves along they will run down to the next campfire, so the same guys are marching all the way down there and dancing around these campfires and to the Johnson's army watching that the, that the canyon is filled with all of these uh, Mormon marauders that burned all of our provisions and made us stuck in Wyoming over the, over the winter. It's the same guys over and over and over. But they didn't fight. Now, there were two groups, though, that Outside the sanction of the Lord, I think operated to disaster. One was there is the there was the Mormon vengeance that broke out in Missouri in 1838, um, where where Latter-day Saints were actually going in and and burning uh, barns and stealing livestock and taking provisions back. Uh, to far west now the result of that one was Hans Mill and the atrocity there and, and then the collapse and siege of far west and the imprisonment of Joseph Smith in this case where they chose to fight the results were horrible now, in some ways, the next one's even worse, and that's the Mountain Meadows Massacre. In 1857, while Lot Smith's marauders were holding the army at bay, the the local militia in southern Utah ends up committing the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was not by not sanctioned by Brigham Young. He has a rider on his way to. Uh, St. George to say don't attack these guys and then they did anyway and it was, it was too late the echoes of that were really far reaching in the country and really cast the saints in an incredibly bad light and had ramifications even to today about that let alone just the just the, uh, the blood on the hands of good LDS people some of which were at Hans Mill So, so often, yes, there will be armies. But over and over and over, the the Lord finds a way for them to not have to fight. I don't think that's his preference. I don't think that's the desire to find other ways to do it outside of bloodshed. So, let's go back to uh, the flood. So again, here's the great paradox, right? That that God is going to demonstrate in the Old Testament and certainly in the New that at all costs he wants to find a way that there not be bloodshed. That violence is one of those things that caused the flood in the first place. And yet here comes this great violent act But watch how the Lord handles this particular act of incredible violence. First of all, there's the emotional toll on God. Moses 7 says, It came to pass that the God of heaven looked upon the residue, that is those that didn't hop into the ark, that didn't repent. After 120 years of being warned, don't do this, they did anyway, They are the residue of the people, and he wept. We've talked about that, how Enoch watched in wonder at a weeping God who says, these were the creation of my hands. You know, without some of this, I think people sometimes look at the Genesis and goes that God figured out he made a mistake. It says he repented, of making man and so I'm just gonna wash my hands of them literally and cause the flood uh, and go about my way because these little ants are being bad and we'll just start over no we're talking about, the thing if nothing else we learn from the book of Moses is the personal toll that when bloodshed seems to in some way be required that it's not done without pain and personal heartache to their creator who is also hurting that it even had to be what they were doing was horrible and I hate that I have to have some bloodshed in order to stop even more of that uh, and that's a, that's a decision only a God can make right? so that was the effect on him, what about Enoch who was watching Uh, his grandkids and, and their companions in all of this and as Enoch saw this he had bitterness of soul and he wept over his brethren and said unto the heavens I refuse to be comforted so painful is all of this so painful that if there was any other way around it I wish there was what about Noah? This is the man on the ground. This is the man with the saw in his hand, building the ark, and he's the one that, as you read um, Moses, say, you find him saying, that, and God saying, this is actually what Moses is suggesting. He can't see any other way around how we stop all of this. So, what's Noah's response to the death of the people who threatened his family that took his granddaughters and married them outside the covenant and then rose great grandkids that were perpetrating the violence very very personal for uh, Noah if you read Moses 8 very carefully especially the last half of the of the chapter what's his response to the the violence and the bloodshed that will happen as a result of that wickedness and it repented Noah and his heart was pained that the Lord had made man on the earth and it grieved him at the heart Noah weeps as did the others of his order Melchizedek and Enoch and God This is not done uh, out of a sense of justice or vengeance. It's done out of a sense of we just don't feel like there's any other options, which might have been what Nephi was feeling that night in Jerusalem as he stood over the body of Laban. Now, I need you to see though that in, in the executing of what would look like righteous or heavenly violence. I want you to notice how the Lord handles this. And how he prepares a way to offset this. And that is he's going to institute a plan. And watch who, watch who it is that's gonna, that suggests the plan about how we handle this. A lot more going on here on the other side of the veil than maybe we have any idea. But behold, these which thine eyes uh, are upon shall perish in the flood. Talking to Enoch. And behold, I will shut them up into a prison that I have prepared for them. There will be... uh, after their death, there will be a prison where they go because of their wickedness. They, a prison meaning, not with bars, a prison meaning that they're going to die and they won't be able to withstand my presence. It would be hell if he took the people who immediately died in the flood and brought them into God's presence. That would be horribly painful and he's not going to do that but what does happen and he the savior which I have chosen hath pled before my face so in the process of this imagine this moment uh, we get get hints of this in the doctrine covenants which I have chosen hath pled before my face wherefore he suffereth for their sins he's going to He's going to defeat sin on the cross. In so much as as they will repent, and in so much as they will repent, and they did. Repent in the day that my chosen shall return unto me, and and until that day they shall be in torment that I will put them in a place and it's being called prison but I think that's a, it's, it's a place of rehabilitation, it's a place of understanding it's going to be a place where their eyes are going to be finally opened now, when did that happen and how did that happen well, the Lord's anointed on the earth in that first century will tell you when that happened because Christ also suffered for sins. This is in 1 Peter 3. This is Joseph Smith translation. Because Christ also suffered sins for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring you to God, speaking about all of us, by, putting, by being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit, he will be recreated. And then specifically, in which he entered and preached to the spirits in prison. Joseph F. Smith says that he organized missionary work uh, to go into prison, some of whom were disobedient in the days of Noah. While the long-suffering of God waited. Let me say that differently as soon as possible, as soon as Christ rose from the tomb the first place he went it appears was to those that had died in the flood and Peter wants us to know that he went to them some of whom were disobedient but you get a sense that they were repenting some of whom were disobedient even while the long-suffering like Noah waited and hoped that they would do it. That day finally came. So imagine the joy for Noah and Enoch and the Lord when they are watching Jesus Christ stand in the spirit world And again, Joseph F. Smith in section 138 gives us a a view of the joy that rolled out of the spirit world when the resurrected Christ is standing before them and he's he's holding the keys of death and hell, having defeated sin and having defeated death. And finally, after all the centuries in spirit, the spirit world these disobedient at the time of Noah have a path out because of a plan put forward by the Lamb so in other words it's another way of saying yes there was violence yes there was a bloodshed and yes just like Elisha leading those Syrian bands trying to attack him he led them out of that place and had their eyes opened and fed them in that sense Elisha become very much a symbol symbol of how you handle uh, armies that want to destroy you and you find a way to do it with love and kindness and sometimes you'll have to fight but only when God commands now, where does that lead us? Well, as, I, as I've thought about this, I really believe that uh, when we look at this, we may, as you sit here listening today, you, you, may, you may be saying, well, okay, I see other people committing violence, and I, and I don't do violence, uh, I hate violence, Uh, some of you that are listening have had violence perpetrated against you. All day long I work with people that have struggled with traumatic moments in their life and, and that trauma has left wounds and scars that take them a lifetime to heal from. That violence against them has caused pain that just doesn't seem to go away. Violence against them causes things that even in the present... They can be triggered in such a way that they are picked up and emotionally carried back to the past to relive the violence that was perpetrated uh, before. Violence has, is so soul tearing that it can get into our psyche and into our emotional well-being uh, and affect us for way down the road. Speak to anybody, uh, you know, it's been Veterans Day is the, is the week that we are recording this. And we think about all of those veterans who came back physically but emotionally are still on the battlefield. It's one of the reasons we honor them so much as we do because of the, the violence that they were subjected to in their souls that they still carry and we're, and we're grateful for them. But we may look at it and say, "Okay, violence is not something that I I worry about too much." Well, can, can I suggest uh, a couple of things just to be thinking about as we as we're wrapping up? I think we have to ask ourselves if we are ever party to violence. We may say, "No, I wouldn't hit somebody. I wouldn't do that. I, that that's not me. I, I just wouldn't do that." Okay. But let me ask you this. When we grudge, when we gossip, when we're somehow getting back at someone, do we violence more than maybe we realize? Do we create an emotional violence against others that causes pain and hurt, however well-deserved, have we done something that's created created pain when word gets back to them what we have said, or they see the full benefit of karma somehow getting them? You know, there and vengeance has happened. Do we do we violence more than we know uh, when we grudge and we refuse a relationship? We refuse to reconnect. We refuse to forgive in a sense, we have emotionally violenced others. And we may be creating more wounds and pain than we know. And we might be creating emotional bloodshed. And it's being perpetrated by somebody who would never dream of committing physical bloodshed. But we might be creating emotional bloodshed in what we say and what we do and that, should, and, and that should catch all of us to the quick because I think we're all guilty at some level of, of doing that so finally we, I, I just think this is a good time as we look at the flood and that the earth was filled with violence that are any of our actions causing hurt or pain in others no matter how well intended or how l- less we may think we're not being violent, maybe we are and maybe we got a chance to repent. The great thing is as the the Lord prepared a plan to redeem uh, those who have violence in their past, emotional or physical and he ca- and he wants to call us home and teach us. Remind us of the gospel of peace and and love us and help us be better so that we can live with him again. It's my prayer that we can not be violent. (laughs) It's my prayer that we can preach emotional peace and that so doing it, we may be able to stop physical bloodshed through emotional love. I pray that we can do this, and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.